Good morning, church. All right. It's great to see you all. Those of you that are joining us online as well. Um, So we are continuing on in our series in Colossians. Um, But before we jump into our next four, we're just covering four little verses, but there's a lot packed into them. Before we jump into those, let's, uh, we're we're doing our Memorize Scripture 2021, so let's, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen. Why don't we do this together? Are you ready? And a one, two, three. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Amen. Amen. Uh, Pastor Jim Supp asked me to uh, ask you all in preparation for next week's message. I know we've been asking everybody to read through. Read through the letter of Colossians every week. You can get through it really quickly, actually, or listen to it really quickly. In addition to that, he wants you to read the little letter to Philemon as well. So that's your assignment for the week. Read through Colossians one more time and then Philemon as well. Now let me, I'm going to start off a little bit different today. I'm just going to read... I'm going to tear the, tear the band-aid off, and we're just going to read our four verses. Now, we are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, if you want to turn there. Colossians 3.18 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. God, we pray for the illumination of your spirit to help us to understand what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, that you would sink these words deep into our hearts and that it would continue the work that you began in each of us when we came to Christ in faith of transforming us evermore into his image for your glory, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, okay, if, if you are at all feeling uh, offended or um, provoked or maybe a little bit uneasy at the reading of those four little verses, you're in good company, right? <laughs> Me too, right? Um, and in my family as well, between my wife and I. But we have to keep this in mind. If the Bible is the Word of God, and it is, then it only makes sense that this, that this book might make us uneasy or uncomfortable or provoke us a little bit from time to time, right? It should, that would only make sense. And it does, in particular, in this, in this place. Now, if you're here, if you're watching, and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and maybe you're just exploring the Christian faith, I would say to you, hang in there. You're probably wondering, what in the world did he just say? What did he just read? Is that in the Bible, really? Hang in there. Hang in there. Because if you're struggling in your family life, if the things that are, that the relationships within your family are strained, if seem, seem a little bit out of sync, if you can't seem to quite get it right, I think what you're going to hear this morning and what you're going to see this morning is the beauty of Jesus on display in God's vision for the family. And perhaps the answer to calibrating your home life. Amen? So hang in there. Now last week, last week we heard a lot about attitudes and actions that we should put on and others that we should put off. And I think that all of us throughout the the 17 verses in in the beginning of uh, Colossians 3 last week were probably most of us sitting here nodding our heads going, Amen. 
Yes and amen, right? Put off anger. Put off malice. Don't lie to one another. Yes. Right? Put on meekness and humility and love and gentleness and kindness towards one another and forgiveness in Christ. Yes. Right? I need to love I need to love my brother and sister in the Lord in, in, in a Christ-like way. And I think we can all very comfortably sit here and go, yes, I agree with that. Amen. But you see, God doesn't quite let us get away that easy. Because in the next four verses, what he says to us is, okay, now I want you to apply those 17 verses in the most intimate relationships that you have. The relationships that you can't get away from. I can come here this morning, and I got a shower, and I got dressed, and I can come here, and I can put on my best one another face for you all for an hour and a half or two hours. I can go to work during the week, and I can, I can probably hang on to that same feeling. But if the Spirit of Christ is not having His way in my home, in my family, then all of the rest of that is just a facade. All the rest of that's just a mask. And what these four little verses do is it it forces us to confront a question. Here's the question. What practical difference is your faith in Christ making in your home? What practical difference is your faith in Christ making in your home? Now, these are difficult passages. They challenge us. They confront us. And I guarantee you that they did the same to the original audience in the first century. Okay, this was a culture... Paul was speaking into a culture that was patriarchal. The patriarch had supreme power, had supreme power. What God spoke here through Paul was controversial then, just as it is today in the 21st century. But as followers of Jesus, what we can't do is we can't just go, oh yeah, that's hard, let's just move on. We have to take this head on. We have to try to understand it in its context We have to try to understand what God is trying to say to us. And then we need to apply those things by faith in our lives, in our homes. Now, I think what you're going to find as we go through this is that you're going to find that this is interesting. I think that it's freeing. I think that it's life-giving. I think it's going to be revolutionary, perhaps, for your family about what it looks like to reflect or image Jesus Christ, the, the glory of Jesus Christ in your, in your family. Now, we might also have a princess bride moment or two throughout. If you don't know what a princess bride moment is, it's the moment when I say to you, I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> now, I'm glad everyone laughed, so you know if you don't. If you didn't laugh, go watch Princess Bride, you'll get it. Culture is always going to try to define family. It did it in the first century. It does it in the 21st century. But if we want to understand God's design and desire for the family, no matter what culture or time period we find ourselves in, we need to be anchored in God's word. What we cannot do is we cannot assess or interpret this through the lens of our culture. We're we're getting things completely backwards when we do that. Now, before we dive into these verses individually, I want to set all of them in their context in the letter. So in Colossians, we've gone through the first two chapters. We've learned, you know, God is our Father. Christ is preeminent Lord. He is, he is the head or the husband of the bride, which is the church. He has all authority because all things have been created by him. 
Uh, so they are sustained by him. They were created for him. We've learned that we are empowered by the spirit of Christ that dwells in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We found out that we as, as God's creatures in Christ, we become beloved, chosen children who are equals or peers in Christ. And that all of us together are being called to put on Christ-like love, Christ-like character. And then we do all of that with thankfulness in our hearts to God in the name of Jesus. Okay, so the context of the first two chapters outline for us or lay out for us our common position in relation to the Father and to Christ. Now, this is going to be, might be interesting to some of you. In Christ, we are all, men and women, young and old, we are all bride. We're all wife. Now, where do I get that from? The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 5, I think we have a slide for that. Good. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker, he's speaking to the people of Israel here. He's speaking to the people of God, the people of Israel, who, that group of people that we all have been grafted into in Christ. And he says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And then Jesus takes up that same theme in the New Testament. Paul carries the same theme on. We see it in the book of Revelation through the apostle John. And so we are all to live in humble submission to Christ, the husband, as bride. So in that sense, metaphorically, we are all wife. We are all bride. But we are also all child. If you look at John 1, 12, But to all who did receive him, who all who believed in his name, this is Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. And so in Christ, we are also men and women, young and old, we are all child. And so we are called to live obediently as children under the loving care of our Heavenly Father. Right? That's, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. By humbly recognizing our sin and our inability to reconcile ourselves to God, by receiving Jesus as our Savior, our sufficient Savior and our King, we become children of the Father. We become chosen and beloved children that are empowered by God's Spirit to put on Christ and put on Christ-like character, to enter into that new humanity that Jesus is recreating. Okay, so then in chapter 3, we learn that as fellow believers, we're universally called to be mutually submitting caregivers for one another in the Lord as peers, right? And our oneness or our equality that we share in Christ extends to pretty much every aspect of our personhood, whether that's our ethnicity, our social status. If you look in Galatians 3.28, it extends to gender. And so all of us together, we are all bride, we're all wife, we're all child, and we are also all caregiver. And that is universal. It's common. It is our common calling. So the next four verses, the ones that we just read in the beginning, are not thrown in there haphazardly. This is the continuation of Paul's line of, of thought, where he's asking that question, what practical difference does your faith in Christ make in your home? Are our lives, are our attitudes, are our actions indistinguishable from those of families outside of Christ? Might be another way to put the question. Now, this might be news to you guys, but marriage and family, they were not created or intended primarily to meet your needs. 
Your needs for love, your needs for affirmation, your needs for physical intimacy, or any other needs you might not have. That's not the primary purpose. Now, if that's a shock, it really shouldn't be when we think about it, right? Because we just finished seeing that everything in heaven and on earth was created by Christ and for Christ. And that would include our families. The family unit is a microcosm of the church. This group here is the family of families. We are part of the body of Christ. The family is a microcosm of that body, and such is it's a living metaphor, right? The husband and wife are imaging or reflecting the, the relationship between Christ and the church. Parents and children are there imaging or reflecting the relationship between the father and his beloved children. So we're going to go through four roles this morning. Wife, husband, parent, and child. And at different times, all of us have worn multiple hats, sometimes simultaneously. Okay, and, and, and our roles shift throughout our lifetime. So for example, if a, a, a woman who is married, who has living parents, and is also has children of her own, she is both wife, child, and parent all at the same time, plus her common calling of bride and child and mutual caregiver all at the same time. So how do, we, how do we live out those different roles? How do we live them out? Do we do it by the standards of the culture that we live in? Do we do it by our own personal desires or our own sense of maybe what's fair or right or what we would like? Or, or do we choose to do it by the unchanging design of a loving father? So I want to read those four little verses one more time. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. And so Paul begins with the nucleus or the core of the family. He's going to begin with the, fa- with the, the husband and the wife, the wife and the husband. And I'm going to spend probably three quarters of my time on those two. And the reason is... If you can get those two right, you've got more than half the battle won in your parenting. All right? Now, there's, there's some ground rules. And the first one is this. When God is addressing wives, he's addressing wives. When God is addressing husbands, he's addressing husbands. And neither has the right to take up the address to the other and use it as a tool, a weapon, or leverage to make demands. Period. Full stop. Okay? The second is that what those verses should do for us, when I read the verses that are to the wife, what it should do and what I should pray for it to do in my heart is to engender compassion for the, the difficult task that my bride has to live in that role and vice versa, and a desire, a real heartfelt desire to help her in whatever way I can to be successful in that. I will also say that it's probably worth noting that what God is talking about in this particular passage is the intact family in Christ. God addresses other situations elsewhere, things like marriage, uh, divorce rather and remarriage, uh, orphans, widows, living with an unbelieving spouse. But here he's talking about the intact family in Christ. And so he begins with this verse, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
Now, that in, in, in modern, contemporary America is the one that tends to give us the most trouble. Um, and we're going to look at three things that are going to help us here really understand all of these passages, really. We're going to look at attitude, we're going to look at the object, and then we're going to look at the motive. And I think as we work through this, you're going to see how if we understand those three things, we can understand properly these passages. So, the attitude here is submission. It's very important that we understand what the word means. So there, the word in Greek for submission, there are two uses of the word, two contexts that can be used in. Number one is a military context where it describes uh, you know, soldiers organized by rank under leadership. That's not the context of these passages. Right? Military leaders have earned their rank by either time of service, schooling, performance on the battlefield, or some other thing. They have earned the place that they, that they are. That's not the case in the family. The husband is husband by virtue of two simple things. He's a man, and he got married. Right? It says nothing about his aptitude, his ability, or even his character. So that is not the usage of the word submit here. The second usage is outside the military context. And, and here's what it means. I'm going to put it up on a slide. Submission is a voluntary attitude of deference, support, and cooperation with leadership, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. Let that sink in for a second. So the attitude is one of willing, voluntary, deference, support, cooperation, and burden bearing. That's the attitude. So what is the object of the attitude? Well, we can see in the verse, it is your husband, or in some translations, your own husband. So this is not, as the culture has tended to try to make it seem like, some kind of blanket statement of male dominance, male superiority, or anything else. The voluntary attitude of deference and support is for your husband. Not all men, not all husbands, and not some patriarch of the family. And also, this says nothing, doesn't even address political leadership, professional leadership in any way. So we need to be clear, what is the object of the submission? It is your own husband. Now, I want us to take note of something here. There's something conspicuously missing, and that is any qualifiers. The voluntary attitude of deference to the leadership of the husband is not tied to his abilities, it's not tied to his aptitude, or anything else that he controls. It is just a blanket statement, and we're going to find out why in just a second. So the attitude is, we understand, we understand the object of the attitude, but what is the motivation? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. That's a pretty simple little statement that can be misunderstood, but what it means is, as is due unto the Lord. As is due unto the Lord. So basically we're saying, wives, voluntarily defer, support, and cooperate with your husband's leadership as is due unto the Lord. See, the motive here is to serve Christ. The motive here is to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. So why do we have, and both men and women have difficulties with this verse, why do we have such challenges with this verse? I'm going to suggest four reasons. The first one is a misunderstanding of the attitude. We misunderstand submission. We think immediately military or we think MMA, right, a submission hold, right? I got her. 
Right? Submission in that sense is something that's forced and enforced. But Jesus gives us a very different picture of what submission looks like. In John 5, here's what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, I don't think anybody here would ever make the claim that Jesus was somehow inferior or dominated by the Father. Right? We are all image bearers. Jason talked about that last week. We are all image bearers. And within the family, this living metaphor, wives image the Lord Jesus in his attitude and his actions of submission to the Father. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that we confuse the object and the motive. Every time this verse is written, or read rather, I hear things like a string of caveats that come out after it to ease our discomfort. Unless, of course, your husband, and then just add in whatever you know, failure of the husband you'd like to add in there. Let me first say that husbands who are abusive, husbands who are unfaithful, husbands who are leading their wife into sin need to be rebuked in Christ by the church. Wives need to be protected. That should go without question. And if, ladies, if that, any, or listening to me, if that's you, you need to reach out. You need to reach out for help. But all too often, what we'll hear is things like, yes, I, I can defer to my husband's leadership so long as, so long as he's loving and kind, so long as he doesn't make any dumb decisions, which, by the way, is any decision that I don't agree with, so long as he's following the Lord, and yes, I am the arbiter of whether that is happening or not. Right? So long as I trust him, so long as, so long as. But the word doesn't include any of those so long as statements. See, we're mixing up the object and the motive. The object is our husband, but he's not the motive. The motive is to please the Lord Jesus. Jesus is essentially saying, trust me enough to entrust yourself to the care and the leadership of your husband. The third reason we have a problem with this is that we have superimposed old uh, cultural norms on top of Scripture. And so some people read this passage and they think that it's code for barefoot and pregnant, or they think that it's code for, uh, you know, leave it to beaver style living. And I think that Scripture paints a very, very different picture. I would encourage you, men and women alike, take a moment to read Proverbs 31, verse 10 on through the end. Because I think what you'll see there, that is a wife who is living out her role to voluntarily defer support and cooperate with her husband's leadership, gives him wise counsel. The teaching of wisdom is on her tongue. She values his strength. She backfills his weaknesses. She shows him respect and lifts him up. She speaks well of him in public. She prays for him. She supports him in providing for the family. She's a voice of reason and accountability. And through her obedience to Christ's calling in her life, she gently calls her husband back to his. Now, 26 years ago, I married a very fiery, feisty Brazilian woman. And I did it with my eyes wide open. And I can't say that it's always been easy, but I will tell you this. The fierceness of her love and her devotion and her strength and her intelligence and her leadership abilities, her intuition, her strong opinions, her work ethic, all of those things, although challenging at times, have made me a better man, a better husband, have made our home a more organized and peaceful place and made our children better people. The woman who fears the Lord, as described in Proverbs 31, is not a doormat, nor is she a wallflower. And honestly, men, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't want that anyway. The last reason we have problems with this verse 
has to do with sin and our ego. If you guys remember back in Genesis 3, everyone is getting taken out to the woodshed by God because of the fruit of the knowledge and good and evil incident. And Satan is being cursed. Adam and Eve are being disciplined. And God says this to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband. Guys, that does not mean, I hate to break it to you, it does not mean she's going to be chasing you around the bedroom. Okay, what it actually means is that her desire is going to be for your headship, your leadership. And it is kind of a strange thing when we think about it that we accept submission and the enforced kind in so many different situations and contexts in our lives, from our work to the military to sports teams and Uh, legal authorities, government authorities, all of those kinds of things with very little objection. And yet God's call for wives to willingly defer and cooperate with and support their husband's leadership makes so many of us uncomfortable. The good news is this. In Christ, ladies, you can be free, you are free from that curse to live within the role that God has designed for you. You need not desire your husband's headship. So let's read that verse one more time, and what I want to do is I'm going to kind of bring out all of the depth of meaning that's in there. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. Wives, voluntarily defer to your husband's leadership in a spirit of cooperation, support, and burden-bearing out of love and reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ, entrusting yourself to him. This is not a position of weakness. It is one of great strength. It's one that the Father commends It reflects the heart and strength of Jesus Christ, and it carries all of his blessings. Now, husbands, it's your turn to ask yourself, what practical difference is my faith in Christ making in my home? How is my life, my attitudes, my actions, how are they indistinguishable from other husbands that are outside of Christ? In the Greco-Roman world, lists like this of, of responsibilities within the home were common, except that the husband, the patriarch, was notoriously absent from those. And the reason was that everybody in the house served the patriarch. What Paul does, what God does here, is he takes that and he turns it upside down. And he says, no, in a Christ-centered home, everyone in the family submits to Christ, including the husband. Everybody is accountable for their role, especially the husband. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, the object here is our own bride. As we often say in our vows, forsaking all others. She is now your number one priority. Not your mom, not your friends, not your pastimes, not even your children. And the attitude in our case is an attitude of love. And it's not love as an emotion, but love as an act of the will. Right? God is not forcing us to love, but he is calling us to it. And the kind of love that he's explaining, that he's envisioning here is agape love. That's active love. Love that loves without changing. It's self-giving love. It's love that continues even when it's rejected. Or when the object of your love maybe is unlovable or unappealing in that moment. Agape love loves because it wants to love. It chooses to love. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 love. It's the love of Christ for the church. And Paul uh, gives us a lot more detail into what this, how this love behaves in Ephesians chapter 5. So we're going to bring those verses in because I think it's going to help us understand, gentlemen, what our role really looks like. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, and here's the key word, as Christ 
loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how does Christ love the church? Well, let's look. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus says this about himself. The Son of Man came to serve and not to be served, but to give himself as a ransom for many. And men, and I've said this myself at times, yeah, but what if my wife doesn't show me respect? Okay, let's look at Romans 5.8 to learn how Christ loves in that situation. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the Father has a response to all of our objections. We are hemmed in, guys. There is no escape. So what, why did Christ pour himself out? Why did he spend himself for the church? Ephesians 5.26, he goes on, he says, "...that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor." And then he goes on in verse 28, and he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. So loving your wife as Christ loved the church means that your highest goal is to pursue her well-being, to serve her in such a way as to bring out the best in her. How many of you guys dance? How many of you guys like to dance? A couple. Okay, not many. All right, Patrice and I love to dance. In fact, we have a sign in our kitchen that says, this kitchen is for dancing. All right, and we love to dance. And when, when in the dance between a couple, the man is it takes the lead. He leads. But what is the purpose of his leading? The purpose of his leading is to put her beauty and grace on display. It's to show her off. It's to make her look good. The man only really shows up if he messes up, right? No one's paying attention to you. That is your role. So, guys, husbands, Christ is calling us to voluntarily submit to Him by decision of our will, and pursue our wife's spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being above all else, and to do that with a self-giving servant love that doesn't depend on her response, right? Christ doesn't force us to follow his leadership. He instead woos us into voluntarily, joyfully following him because of his persevering, self-giving love, because of the way that he values us, because of his patience and his kindness and his care, and we should have that same attitude with our wives. And I've heard the objections, and I've made some of them myself. I've tried that, and it didn't work. That's my favorite. I tried that, and it didn't work. Okay, the second you say that, that is not love. That is a, you are using a behavior to try to get something that you want. That's manipulation. But Mike, you don't know my wife. You don't know what she's like at home. No, I don't. But God does. And let's look at the second half of that specific calling to the husband. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The New American Standard kind of gives us the other sense of that and says, and do not be embittered against them. So God clearly recognizes the off chance that our wives may at some point do something that could possibly potentially make us feel bitter. I'm just saying. He's saying it's a possibility. But when we do, here's what happens. When we as husbands begin to, begin to add conditions to our love because we feel that our wife is nagging or she's disrespecting or she's uncooperative, she's unsupporting. God answers those objections in that verse. He says, essentially, regardless of her response to you, be kind. Regardless of whether or not she does something that might cause bitterness, choose to love. So let's read that verse for the husbands again, same way we did for the wives, and bring out some more of that meaning. Husbands, love your wives with the very love that Christ has given, love that pursues her well-being with fervent passion regardless of her response and isn't stifled by bitterness. 
Guys, because when we do that, we are imaging Jesus' love for the church. And what that looks like, it means that we don't have to insist on our way all the time. It means that we lead gently. It means that we cultivate a spirit of uh, partnership in our home. It means that we value and highlight the strengths of our wife. We invest in her well-being. We build her up. We put her first. And we should keep in mind that we are accountable to the Father for the way that we treat our wife. Because in the end, she's also his daughter. Amen? So husbands and wives... You each have a role to play in imaging Christ in your home and in the world. And the greatest freedom and peace and joy that you will find is when you can voluntarily live in the direction of God's, both his common calling and his specific role for you out of loving submission to Christ. Paul forces us to answer the question, what practical difference does my faith in Christ make in my home? And that question as we wrap up here, it extends to the parent-child relationship. So let me first say this. I, I said it at the beginning. Parents, husbands, and wives that have gotten that relationship right have got at least 50% of the battle in the parenting arena solved already. So Paul here begins with the children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, just as an aside, something that I don't understand, we have lots of parenting conferences. I get invited to parenting conferences all the time. Never once have I heard of a childing conference. And I'm looking at you kids. Some of y'all need a childing conference, right? You guys should be signing up for those. We need to talk to Tony Cho, get that started right away. But we have attitude, we have object, we have motive again. The the, The attitude is one of simple obedience. Paul does not use the word submit again. He chooses a different phrase because the relationship is very, very different. And to obey here means two things. It means to listen attentively, right? And then by implication to heed or conform to the authority. So listening and then heeding or conforming to the authority. There are two commands to children toward their parents. We keep it really simple. Honor and obey. The command to honor continues on through our lives, even into adulthood. We are always called to honor our parents, and sometimes that's through attentively listening to their counsel. The command to obey obviously goes on until we are on our own without our family. Proverbs 1, 8 through 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland to your head and pendants for your neck. So the attitude is obedience. It's listening attentively and then conforming to the authority. And the object of the attitude is your parents. Now, some of you guys might go, yeah, Pastor Mike, I'm sorry, you don't know my parents. To which, again, I would say, no, I don't. But God does. But God does. The object of your obedience is your parents, but the motive of your obedience is not. The motive of your obedience is not tied to your parents' godliness, righteousness, or lack thereof. The object of the obedience is Christ. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Once again, there's, there are no so long as statements. There's no caveats to the command because the motive is serving Christ. It's reflecting his character and his obedience to the Father. And I would say the same goes for adult children in honoring their parents, whether their parents are honorable or not. In the simple act of obeying and honoring our parents, we are reflecting the heart of Christ and his own obedience and honor of our Heavenly Father. 
Now, again, I hope it goes without saying that children that are suffering abuse at the hands of parents have to be protected. But even in those dark situations, and I've encountered a number of them throughout my career, God can work through children who are submitted to Christ to allow their attitude of obedience and honor to draw the heart of a lost parent to the Lord. And I have got at least a dozen stories of parents coming to Christ, being freed from alcoholism, drug addiction, and godless, a godless lifestyle through the witness of their children. So children in the family, just like husbands, just like wives, need to ask themselves, what practical difference is my faith in Christ making in my home? How am I different? How are my attitudes or my actions different than my peers? Now, fathers, to which we mean parents, right? Parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So keep in mind, again, our universal calling, the one and others, right? Our universal calling says that we treat our children as actual or potential co-heirs with us in Christ, actual or, poten or potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. So we have our common calling, but in addition to that, we have a specific role, and that is as parent. And our purpose in that role, once again, is to image or reflect the character of the Heavenly Father in our parenting. There are lots of positive commands in Scripture uh, for parenting, raise up your child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, raise up a child in the way that he should go, impress these truths upon your children as you walk along the way. But what Paul does here is he focuses on a simple negative command. Do not provoke. Right? Do not pick fights with your children by perpetual fault finding, by making unreasonable demands, by using unkind or demeaning words, by lecturing them incessantly. Right? By pointing out the negative, Paul is basically highlighting the positive. He's saying, don't provoke, but rather parent out of grace. Right? That's the attitude. The object, then, is our children. And once again, the motive is reflecting the character of God through our parenting. Dr. Tim Kimmel has a great line. He says that parenting out of grace means treating our children as God treats us. And if we think about that, the father does not browbeat us. He doesn't manipulate us. He is not irritable with us. On the contrary. The Father is patient, He's kind, He rejoices over us when we obey Him by faith, He corrects us when we step outside of His path for our lives, He pursues us in relationship, He freely forgives us and restores us. That's the model that we have. And why should we not provoke our children? Well, we should not provoke them lest they become discouraged, lest you crush their spirit. I have counseled a lot of adults who have been seriously damaged by parents who crush their spirits in their childhood. There are so many young people who have abandoned their faith because of the hypocrisy that they saw in their home. Josh McDowell, and I want to put this quote up there because I love it. Josh McDowell has famously said this, truth without relationship leads to rejection. Rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Discipline without relationship leads to bitterness, anger, and resentment. So we need to ask ourselves, parents, two questions. Do our children know that we're not perfect? Yes, I guarantee you, unless they're infants, they know it. The more important question is, do our children know that we know that we're not perfect? 
Right? That is living in a way that is transparent before our children. So the Christ-centered family, the Christ-centered family lives together in the direction of God's calling, reflecting the image of Christ both in our common calling as peers and in our specific roles. And those things don't ever cancel each other out. They don't ever contradict one another. Wives, husbands, children, parents, family in Christ. Now, there is a ton more that I could say uh, uh, on the full counsel of God regarding the family and that would not fit into a single talk. Um, So I will say this. For our couples, I would love to invite you to participate in Homefront. Homefront is our marriage, uh, married couples fellowship where we get to talk about and work through a lot of these issues, a lot of these scenarios, the what ifs, how do I relate to my wife, how do I relate to my husband within my common calling and within my role. In fact, since we're at the 9 o'clock service at 1045, we are going to be at Homefront upstairs, room 250, we're going to be just talking through the message that you just heard together as couples around the table. So I invite you, if you want to check out Homefront, do that today. And you'll get to have a sermon discussion time, which is, should be really rich. Parents, I would encourage you, take advantage of all the resources that are available to you at Rest and Bible Church. Everything from our parenting classes to our resource guides. There's something called a parenting pathway that's online. It's got a lot of really great material. It's just restandbible.org slash pathway. You can check that out. Quest Children's Ministry, our youth ministries. Take advantage of what God has provided to you through your church. And finally, for all of us, I would say don't delay these conversations. The Word tells us to consider our ways and turn our feet, to hasten and not delay to return to God's commandments. Husbands and wives, take the time today to sit down and talk about this. How am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a wife within my role? Parents and children, have the conversation. Parents and adult children. Single peers, how are you honoring your parents? Don't delay. Have the conversation today because the battle on the front line, the home front line, is fierce. And and our enemy will go to great lengths to tarnish the image of Christ that is supposed to shine through your family. So put on Christ at home and ask yourself, what practical difference is our faith in Christ making in our family? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to dive into it. God, I pray that you would use it to change us, to change our attitudes, change our actions. God, that you would use it to help our families to reflect your glory that the world might see. God, we ask for your blessing on our day and even as we respond to you now in worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.